This is Glasgow Crime Stories. We dive into crime of the city's past in short episodes you can listen to anytime, anywhere. In today's episode of the Glasgow Crime Stories, we delve into the true story of Alexander Miller, who was jailed for life in 1976 for the murder of a young brother and sister in their home in Govan. It was January 1976, and John McMonagall and his three young children lived in one of the most deprived and run-down areas of Glasgow. So bad were the tenements in Goldsby Street and Govan that the council were planning to knock every one of them down so they could redevelop the area. Earlier that month, the McMonagalls had been offered a flat and a housing estate in Pollock that was being built and were due to move in over the next few days. It promised to be a new life and a better life. Other families in Goldsby Street had already moved out and most of the flats were now boarded up. Unfortunately, those who remained were targeted by sneak thieves who saw easy pickings. Two weeks earlier, the McMonagall's home had been broken into and what little they had of value taken. But in a move that was to prove tragically significant, the housebreaker had left behind their old black-and-white television. However, That was not going to put the law-abiding McMonagalls off their big move. They had already shifted some of their household items to the new house and were making the last of their preparations for the big flit. At the time, the kid's mum, a shop manager, and dad, a dock worker, were separated, with John bringing up the kids. However, though things hadn't worked out between them, the separation was amicable and the three kids had chosen to stay with their dad. John had set off that morning from 108 Goldsby Street with his youngest, eight-year-old Elizabeth, leaving the older two, Irene, 12, and John, 13, at his home under the watchful eye of a neighbour. The family home at 108 Goldsby Street was on the top floor, in what was then called a single end, with most of the family forced to live, sleep and eat in one space, which was common at that time. At one point, their grandmother had also lived with them. Their new home was luxury by comparison. A three-bedroom flat with a proper kitchen, a bathroom and a living room. They were all excited by the thought of moving into such a palace. The wooden packing boxes were filled and ready to go. That morning, John and Irene decided to let Liz go with the dad on the bus to their new home in Pollock. At least one of them had to stay at home, as electricians were coming to disconnect the cooker. Irene didn't want to go anyway. Not yet. Dad John left money in the mantelpiece so the children could buy chips for the tea. He then set off to the new flat to turn the electricity on and get settled in. The close of the old flat was in darkness when they returned hours later, shortly before 6pm, after what had been a successful day. When they got to the top floor, their dog Rex was barking outside the front door, which was open. Liz walked in first to discover the flat in darkness and no sound. As John followed his daughter into the flat, he froze in horror. His two beautiful children lay dead on the couch with blood everywhere, their skulls having been smashed to a pulp. Both children had also been bound and gagged and then beaten to death, with the killer also having indecently assaulted Irene. Elizabeth ran out of the flat, screaming, 
John ran in, trying to save his two children. He was frantic, not knowing what to do. Shouting and crying, he tried to untie both children and take the gags out of their mouths. There was blood everywhere, on the walls and the floor. The young brother and sisters were covered in blood, and their faces could barely be made out. They had been battered with a claw hammer and metal roller skates that Irene had got for her birthday earlier that month. John had been keen to tell his two children how lovely their new home was and how excited he was about the future. Now, it had all ended in tears. Still numb with shock, he went to phone the police and also tell a close relative what had happened. When the relative saw the bloodbath, he was physically sick. The police arrived a short time later. The flat was sealed off and a murder hunt was launched. Even hardened detectives were shaken by the sight inside the family home that evening. Young John had tried to fight Miller off to protect his sister with a claw hammer, but was not strong enough. Instead, Miller grabbed the weapon from him and battered the youngsters to death. There had been previous tragedy in the family, but nothing like this. David, who had been born in 1965, a year before Liz, had died of pneumonia aged just six months. The police took John and Liz to have their fingerprints taken for elimination purposes. As is normal in a case like this, horrified local people lined up to help the cops in any way they could. The crime sickened the city, and one newspaper put up a £1,000 reward, £7,000 in today's money, to catch the killer. A huge squad of detectives worked in the case, the police were under pressure. The killer madman had to be caught before he killed again. More than 200 police officers worked on the McMonagall murder investigation from Govan Police Office in nearby Orkney Street. An appeal was even launched to the 40,000 spectators who had been at nearby Ibrook Stadium that day, January the 17th, watching Rangers play Hibs. The game ended at 4.40pm, around the time John and Irene were believed to have been attacked. Pleas were also made to passengers on the busy subway, especially those who had got on or off at Govan Cross, near the McMonagall's house. Police took more than 20,000 statements in a bid to establish what every other Govan resident was doing that day. The inquiry was made more difficult as there was no forensic evidence to speak of. Govan itself was in a state of terror, with parents refusing to leave their older children unattended. John had the grim task of trying to identify his two children on a grainy black-and-white monitor at the city mortuary. He was asked by one of the detectives, Is it them? He managed to reply, Oh, aye, that's my wee boy and lassie. After a few days of door-to-door inquiries, Detectives came up with a possible suspect. A red-haired man wearing a grey suit had been seen acting suspiciously in the area at the time of the murder. One local named him as Alexander Miller, who had only recently moved out of the area to Easter House and had been a neighbour of the family. A few weeks earlier, the McMonagall's home had been burgled and various items taken, including a transistor radio. Had the killer come back for a second time? John McMonagall himself recalled seeing his former neighbour Miller around that week, but hadn't suspected anything. Eventually, Miller, a self-confessed thief, 
was traced to an address in Easterhouse where he lived with a woman. He had a low IQ and had to attend a special school as a child. His main interest in life was watching the television. In fact, he watched it all the time. It was an obsession, an obsession that would later prove fatal. Miller also had red hair and a grey suit, just as the neighbours in Galsby Street had described around the time of the double murder. He denied any knowledge of the two killings, but admitted robbing the McMonigal's home a few weeks earlier. He said he had been out that day and returned to his new home just in time to catch the end of Doctor Who, his favourite show. That made the police suspicious. If Doctor Who was his favourite show, why had he been out and missed most of it? And where had he been? Having confessed to the first burglary, Miller, 27, was jailed for 60 days. Almost everyone in the Govan area was interviewed about the murder in case they had any information. But apart from the sighting of the man with red hair, little of use came from the many media appeals. One senior officer involved in the manhunt, DC Alex Mickey, said at the time, most of the old population had moved out. Shiftless squatters and down-and-outs had moved into the empty buildings. Nobody had seen anything. At one point, there were 750 possible suspects before the net finally closed in on Miller. At the time, the man who led the murder hunt, Detective Superintendent James Budd, described the killings as brutal. He added, You don't expect this type of behaviour from anyone who is normal. There was nothing else linking Miller to the murder at the time. Then came an unexpected breakthrough. The suspect's brother, Leslie, had asked to see the police. He revealed that Miller had stayed with them on the night before the murders and there was a fault with the TV, something that didn't please Miller at all. In fact, he had said, I know where I can get a TV that works. The cops returned to the bloodstained flat and, sure enough, there in the corner was a TV. Underneath were marks where someone had lifted it. Had Miller spotted the TV when he robbed the house weeks before? Was the attempted theft of the TV the motive for murder? Leslie had one more crucial piece of evidence to give the cops. He and Miller had met at about 5.30pm on the day of the murders, and Miller had asked him if he had heard of the killing of two kids in Govan. At that time, not even their dad had discovered the two dead bodies. Miller could only have known if he was the murderer. They knew they had their man, but how to nail him? Leslie agreed that he would speak with his brother and see if he would admit to the murders. This time, the police would bug the room and record any conversation. They got permission from the procurator fiscal, and the trap was laid. A room in Orkney Street Police Station was bugged, and the two brothers left there to talk. Eventually, Miller told his brother that the police were on to him, and asked what might happen if he confessed. Leslie said he should just tell the truth. Following a two-month manhunt and 6,000 door-to-door inquiries, Miller was charged with a double murder later that day. He was also charged with stealing 34p from John, the money that had been left to buy the chips, putting a sock in his mouth, tying his hands and feet and bludgeoning him with a hammer. He was further charged with tying Irene's hands behind her back, committing an indecent offence and striking her repeatedly in the head with a hammer. 
On May 13, 1976, Miller pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of culpable homicide at the High Court in Glasgow on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He revealed that he had gone into the McMonagall house on his own to steal their TV, having been there two weeks earlier. He lifted it, but both children appeared unexpectedly. When little Irene shouted, I know you, I'll tell my daddy, he flew into an uncontrollable rage. He tied both children up and smashed their skulls with a claw hammer, which he grabbed off John when he confronted the intruder. Miller was ordered to be detained for life without limit of time at the High Court in May 1976 and sent to the State Hospital, Castellas. The judge, Lord Wheatley, described his crimes as most terrible and said Miller could certainly repeat his offence if ever freed. He was told that the killer had fits of blind rage when thwarted and had gone missing from psychiatric hospitals twenty times before the killings. The people of Govan and Glasgow sighed with relief that day, but have never forgotten the two children whose lives were so cruelly cut short. Recently, locals raised £3,000 to put a black memorial headstone in St Conville's Cemetery in Barhead. It bears inscriptions to the two children and other members of the family, with gold lettering and a small statue of the Virgin Mary. At the age of 74, Alexander Miller is one of Scotland's longest-serving and oldest inmates, having been incarcerated for the last 45 years. For most of that time, he was held at Carstairs before being transferred to a secure psychiatric unit in Ayrshire, where he was put in work placements to see how he adapted to being back in the community. In 2014, he was photographed taking part in a community gardening project in Ayr, smiling unsuspectingly, for the benefit of the camera. Over the years, the McMonagall family have campaigned relentlessly to keep him behind bars. The law changed 15 years ago to ensure prisoner patients like Miller are referred to a mental health tribunal every two years. They can order that he be kept inside or released. Miller's latest bid for freedom was rejected in October after he had applied two years earlier. Liz, now 54, has welcomed the decision to refuse his release. She has four children of her own and three beautiful grandchildren. In one interview she said, two beautiful souls were taken from us in the most unimaginable way and it has felt like I am being persecuted every time these tribunals come around. It feels like we will never have peace. What I saw all those years ago haunts me every single day. The distress this causes us is immense and it takes its toll on your mental and physical health. I have such pain on the inside, and will always suffer the mental scars. I will always fight to ensure this individual is never released into society. He will always be dangerous. Liz moved to Newcastle several years ago because she was terrified of bumping into Miller in Glasgow. She is forever haunted by the day John and Irene died, and has suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. In a 2013 interview, she said, I still have John's watch, his Celtic scarf, and a chain of irons with a little medal with a saint on it. There's not much left of my brother and sister. The McMonagles have set up a Facebook campaign called Keep Alexander Miller Locked Away, which has more than 16,000 members. 
Its message is simple. This man has proven to be a heartless, evil, vindictive, inhuman demon who should never be released. These children were brutally murdered in their own home, and if Alexander Miller is released, then no child in the streets of Scotland will be safe. This man is an animal. The children's mum died in 1998, and John Senior died at the age of 77 in 2018. Before his death, John said of his children's killer, We have always hoped Miller would not be released into the community. We know what he is capable of, and could never forgive him after what he did to the two children. What he did was evil. This podcast was brought to you by the Glasgow Times. With a digital subscription, you can access our exclusive, insightful and trustworthy local news from just £2 for two months. We are also currently offering 20% off our annual rate with the code GLASGOPOD22. This offers for new subscribers only and is only available with the promotional code given in this podcast. Subscriptions will renew at the standard rates unless cancelled.